Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. This morning, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. And so we love going um, just chapter by chapter through an entire book of the Bible. And this morning, we're in John chapter 6. And in this passage, Jesus teaches on one of the most important and one of the most controversial doctrines that there is. And it is the doctrine of election. So the doctrine of election is just basically this. It's God's eternal plan for how to save his people. I know when we use the word election, usually we're talking politics or something. We're not going to get that controversial today. So nothing about politics. But we're talking about theologically. Election is, it. think of it like God's blueprint for building his church. It's the plan that God has had since before time began for how to save us because he loves us that much. And that's what Jesus talks about in this passage. So before I became a ministry associate at a church, I was actually a mechanical engineer. And so as an engineer, I would work on a lot of 3D models, 2D drawings. And a big part of my job was to create the right drawings for the machinists and the welders to use to be able to make all sort of metal structures. And so my, I needed to make every detail as clear as possible so we could make things efficient and all of that. God's election is kind of like that. Um, another word for election is just predestination. Predestination is kind of like that. It's God's blueprint. It's his map. It's his plan that he's laid out for how he's going to save his people. And so because God loves us so much, because he cares about us so deeply, he's planned out how he's going to save us. Um, I just want to say up front this morning that I know some people love to have big arguments about predestination. That is not my goal at all this morning. Uh, my goal is not to start a debate or an argument. It's just this. It's Jesus talks about election in this passage, and so we're going to talk about election. A big part of our heart at City on a Hill Brighton is that we just want to go through the Bible chapter by chapter. And so sometimes we have easy topics, and sometimes we have more difficult topics. And the reason that we want to go chapter by chapter is just so that we get the whole scope of what Scripture has to cover. And so this morning, we're in a little bit more of a challenging text of John 6, which is talking all about predestination. So Jesus talks about it, therefore we want to talk about it. Um, and maybe, maybe we get to the end of the sermon today, and you don't agree with what our church believes about predestination. I totally get that. That's, that's honestly okay. I think the most important thing is that we are basing our beliefs on what Scripture has to say, and that we love one another, that we do what Jesus says, and we, we have love and unity. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about election. So this language of election and predestination, this is not language I invented or something that our church came up with. This is just language that the Bible uses all over the place. I looked at so many examples this week. I just want to give you three, three places where the Bible uses this kind of language. First one, Matthew 24, 31. This is Jesus talking. He says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Second example, Ephesians 1.5, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. 
John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. So the language of predestination and election is used all throughout the Bible. That was just three examples. The real question is, what do those words mean? And so that's what we want to talk about today. What does the Bible mean when it talks about being chosen and elect and predestined? And so the big thing I want you to take away today is just how good election is for us. There are three big benefits to election that I want us to look at today. And I tried to make it easy, so I alliterated them. So first one, satisfaction. Second, security. Third, spirit-filled life. Election is so good because of God's election, his eternal plan to save us. We can be satisfied, secure, and spirit-filled. So I want us to look at all three right now in John 6. So the first one is satisfaction. Jesus teaches in this passage that he is the bread of life. He gives us another one of his famous I am statements. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Um, Whoever feasts on Jesus by faith will never be spiritually hungry again. So predestination means that God is bringing us to our greatest satisfaction in Jesus. I want to show you how Jesus actually talks about this in John chapter 6. So first, I think it's really important that we kind of get the context in mind of what Jesus is teaching on. So what we saw last week, back in the beginning of John 6, and John 6 verse 4, we learned that this is Passover. And so Passover, we learned all the way back in Exodus 12, was this really special time when God saved Israel from slavery in Egypt. And so when God saved the Israelites, they were making bread, but had to leave so quickly that they had to leave Egypt before the bread could rise. So they had unleavened bread. And so then every year after that, the Israelites would actually make unleavened bread as a way to remember the way that God had saved them from slavery in Egypt. And it's this beautiful symbol all throughout the Bible. And then Jesus shows up during Passover and says, listen, I'm the bread of life. I am the one who's come to save you from slavery to sin. I'm the one who's come to to give you your greatest joy and satisfaction. We also saw last week that Jesus then, during Passover, he multiplied fish and loaves for 5,000 people. And so he took a few fish, a few loaves, and he fed this massive crowd of people. And it's just another way of Jesus trying to tangibly show, I give you physical bread, but he's using it to point us to the fact that he is the ultimate bread of life. He's the one that truly satisfies us forever. And so in the passage that we're looking at today, we're going to see that the crowd who 5,000 plus people who ate the fish and loaves, they want more food. They got a free meal. They got a whole buffet of fish and loaves. And so in our passage today, they come looking for Jesus because they're hungry and they want more food. So look at how Jesus responds to the crowd in John chapter six, verse 23. It says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus tells the crowd, stop looking for temporary satisfaction. Stop looking for this physical bread that isn't ultimately going to satisfy you. Stop just trying to fill up your belly. Come and feast on me. I will satisfy you forever. It was really odd to me this week when I was first reading through this passage that Jesus talks about this work that we need to do. 
in order, a work that endures to eternal life. It's confusing to me because we talked about this a lot in John's gospel. The big idea in John, John 20, 21, uh, John says that so that we would believe and that by believing that we would have life in Jesus. So then why would Jesus come here and say, you need to work. There's a work you need to do to now have life in me. Jesus, he actually gives a really good explanation of this in verses 28 and 29. He says, then the crowd said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So now Jesus explains it. The only work you have to do to be satisfied in Jesus forever is simply to believe. You just have to have faith in Jesus, to rely on him, to depend on him. There's nothing that we can actually do to earn the bread of life. It's simply by believing in Jesus, the one whom God has sent, that we actually have eternal life. But the crowd, they actually want proof of that. They're like, hey, Jesus, give us a sign. So look at verse 30. They say to Jesus, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? Apparently the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't enough. They say, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So now the crowd puts all their cards on the table and they say, we want food. (laughs) Back all the way back in when the nation of Israel was wandering in the wilderness, they had manna, bread from heaven. Jesus, what about us? Give us some food, Jesus. Feed us with bread. We're hungry. They want a miraculous sign so that Jesus can somehow vindicate himself. And we know this is a ridiculous request. Because just a few verses earlier, Jesus already fed 5,000 people with fish and loaves. But the crowd, they just want to fill their stomachs. That's the only thing that they're, offer, that they're after. Um, that, that's actually not the only thing that the crowd gets wrong. The crowd also thinks that when they had manna in the wilderness, that that bread was ultimately from Moses, a human being. And that's where Jesus corrects them. He says, no, no, no. The bread from heaven has always come from God the Father. It's not something humanity gives you. God is the only one who gives the bread of life. He says it in verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. So Jesus wants to be ultra clear. Getting the bread of life, being satisfied forever in God, it's not something that comes from human beings. It's something that only God gives. It's only when the father brings people to the son that they are then satisfied in the son forever. And then verse 35, we get... One of the most powerful verses, probably in the whole Bible, Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus tells the crowd, come and feast on me. There is nowhere else that you will be satisfied apart from me. Anything else that you go to for joy will leave you unsatisfied. I am the bread of life. Come and feast on me and be satisfied forever. I think that, uh, that this is actually really helpful for us understanding the doctrine of election. That God, he gives us our greatest joy by drawing us into faith in Jesus. Well, oftentimes when we talk about the doctrine of election, one of the first things, one of the first things that I thought when someone brought up this doctrine was, what about free will? If you're telling me that God, he elects people, he predestines them, he chooses them, doesn't that mean that we don't have any free will? I mean, I I genuinely thought when I first heard about this as a teenager, I was like, you're telling me we're all robots? 
like God just somehow, he, he, we don't have free will and he just commands us to, we have, whatever he says, we have to go do. That's not how predestination works. And here's why. It's because when God saves us, he's bringing us to our greatest joy, our greatest satisfaction. Imagine with me, if I gave you two options for lunch today, if I said option number one is a big, a big table full of steak and salad and bread and whatever you want, gourmet meal. And then option number two was a big bowl of sewage water. You from your free will, if I said, just pick one, you would always choose option number one. No matter how hard you tried, you would not be able to get your spoon into the sewage water and eat sewage water for lunch. That you, you wouldn't, that, does that mean I'm taking away your free will? No, you're freely choosing. But why do you keep choosing it? Because it's the better option. It's the most satisfying option. Predestination is kind of like that. When God actually shows us how good Jesus is, how beautiful and satisfying he is, we would never choose otherwise. It's not that God is somehow forcing us to do it. He hasn't, we still have free will, but we will freely choose the best option, the most satisfying one. God doesn't work apart from our will, but in and through our will to bring us to salvation because he's bringing us to our greatest joy. I, uh, I think it's really important to see that Jesus is the bread of life that satisfies forever. I got to hang out with my oldest niece last weekend. She's three and a half. She's super cute. Her name's Addie. And we went to this big kids play place. And we were playing, uh, we were playing coffee barista. And so she's behind the bar and she's pretending to, to make some tea. And she hands me this donut. And I looked down at this plastic donut that she gave me. And half the donut is crushed flat from where hundreds, hundreds of children have taken this plastic donut and put it in their mouths and chewed on it. I was like, this is disgusting. That's so gross. All these kids are just chewing on plastic, expecting that it's the real thing and that now they won't be hungry anymore. Jesus is saying that we actually do that, except in a much more profound way. Anytime we go to something else to satisfy ourselves, we're just chewing on plastic. When we have real bread that's offered to us, Jesus wants us to see, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of me will never hunger again. You'll never be thirsty. So come and feast on me. Stop eating the styrofoam and the plastic. Come have the delicious meal that's offered in Jesus. That's what he's trying to get across in this passage. Um, Jesus knows that we will only be satisfied through him. He is the one who's come down to take on flesh so that then he could go to the cross and die in our place. His body was broken. His blood was poured out so we could actually have true joy just by having faith in him. It's by feasting in Jesus that you can be satisfied, by relying on him, by believing in him, by putting your faith in him. That's the only place where we have real joy that will last forever. That's what Jesus wants us to see in this passage. Your heart is craving real joy. You are running to something to satisfy you whether it's Instagram or TV or food or drink or entertainment, there's something you are running to to ultimately satisfy you. Why not make it Jesus and be satisfied in him? Every other thing that we go to will ultimately let us down. We'll be hungry again. 
But in Jesus, we have a satisfaction that will last forever. And so Jesus is calling you in, come and feast. Trust in him. We have a really good opportunity to do this with Lent coming up. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. And so all that means is that it's the beginning of Lent. And so Lent is just the 40 days leading up to Easter. And so historically, during these 40 days leading up to Easter, Christians have chosen to fast from something. They've chosen to put something aside and say, I I won't go to this thing right now. And instead, during times I'm longing for that thing, I will rest in Jesus instead. I will go to him in prayer and praise and trust in him so that instead of craving for something physical, I'll be satisfied in spiritually in Jesus. I think you have a really good opportunity to do this during Lent. It starts this Wednesday. What, what could you pick that you're going to say, I will set this aside so that when you put it aside, your cravings will then increase. And as, as those longings increase, you can then funnel that toward Jesus and say, Jesus is better than this thing. Let me just give you six examples. You can choose whatever you want. I just want to give you a few ideas of things that you could pick from. A few things that you could fast from during Lent to depend on Jesus as the true bread of life. Six things. One, meat. Second, sweets. I think that's the one that I should do. Third, alcohol. Fourth, social media. Fifth, TV. Sixth, gaming. Or fill in the blank. Whatever you want to fast from. And listen, I know for some of us here, choosing to fast from a food like meat or sweets or alcohol, that could be really good for you. That could be helpful for you to grow your desire and satisfaction for Jesus. But I know for others of us here, it could be really damaging to your physical or your mental health to decide to put food aside for a time. And so I would encourage you, instead of doing that, what if you choose something else besides food, something like social media or TV or gaming and say, hey, I I will put this aside. Whatever it is that you want to pick, what will you choose during Lent to say, I will put this thing aside. I won't go to this bread that is only only temporary satisfaction. So instead, I can long for and be satisfied in Jesus more. I want you to feast on the bread of life. I want you to be more satisfied in Jesus than you've ever been. That's what Jesus is trying to get across here. When God, when God elects us, when he predestines us, he's drawing us into our greatest joy. Election is so good for us. God wants us to see that because of election, we get satisfaction. But there's also a second benefit that we get from election. The second thing that we see in this passage that we get from the doctrine of election is security. Whenever God draws us into salvation, when he saves us, we are secure in God's love forever. When God chooses you, he will never unchoose you. The God who saved you will also sustain you. God's love for you is secure. You can never lose it. You can never mess up so bad that God stops loving you. Let me show this to you in the passage. This next section of John 6 is so encouraging. I want to pick up in verse 37. It says, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Notice how Jesus phrased that. Jesus said that the Father gives people to the Son. This is election language. And then this is so good for us because then Jesus says, whoever the father gives to the son, he will never cast out. He'll never get rid of them. Jesus continues to explain this in verse 39. He says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus doesn't lose anyone. He doesn't cast anyone out. He abandons no one. 
Whoever has the love of Jesus can never lose it. Everyone who comes, who the Father gives to the Son, they will be raised up on the last day. You will experience resurrection through the Son. And then verse 44, this is maybe the most controversial and also important verse in John chapter 6. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one comes to the Son unless they're drawn by the Father. This means that the will of the Father is what's ultimately decisive in our salvation. It's not our human will. It's not us choosing. It's God choosing. Him intervening in our lives to draw us to the Son. This means that we don't draw ourselves. And just to be really clear, it's not free will. That means that God shows us just how satisfying Jesus is so that we wouldn't choose otherwise. So we see how good and satisfying and fulfilling Jesus is. I think actually at heart, I think every Christian really knows the doctrine of election deep down. And here's why. We all pray that God would save people in our lives. We all ask God, would you save a lost loved one in my life who's far from you? And we do that because we know that God loves to save sinners who are far from him. We know that God is able to intervene in someone's life to draw them to himself. Why else would we pray and ask God to save people if he couldn't actually do it? We all know to save people and intervene in their lives. I think to be fair, this next verse is one that some people will appeal to. Not that God chooses people. Actually, some people, every single human being who's ever lived is drawn by God and God just gives them enough grace so that it's up to them to choose whether they want God or not. So in this view, let me just read you verse 45 so we can look at it together. Jesus says in verse 45, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. So the argument goes, all people are taught by God. Therefore, all people are drawn and it's just up to us. Will we choose God or will we not? To interpret these verses and here's why. First, the word all can be used in so many different ways. I could say all people who have ever lived, and that's every single human being who's lived up until this point. Or I could say all people in this room. The word all can have different meanings. It could mean every single individual. Or when Jesus says all, he could actually mean all of God's people, all the ones that God saves. And I think when we really dig into this, Jesus, he's quoting a verse here. He's quoting Isaiah 54, verse 13. And when we look at Isaiah 54, 13, the, what, the passage that Jesus is drawing from, the verse he's quoting is actually saying that all of God's children will be taught. All, all of God's people are the ones who are taught by God. So I think what Jesus is actually getting at here, it's not all, every single individual, it's all of God's people. It's, it's all the ones that God saves. Those are the ones who are taught by God, who are drawn by him. Listen, here's why this matters. Because if God saved you, he will always sustain you. He will never cast you out. He will never lose you. He will never abandon you. He will be with you forever. The God who has chosen you will never unchoose you. I think one of the worst things in life can be losing things. Super embarrassing story, really quick. 
I can be the worst personally about losing things. There is a time a few years ago that I was traveling to Denver. And so I got to the airport, headed toward Denver, and I was so exhausted. Guys, I was so tired. It was early in the morning. And I go through TSA, I get to my gate, and I realize I do not have my suitcase with me. And I panic. Like, I had been chatting with someone I didn't know, and in my mind, I'm racing through. I'm like, did he steal my suitcase? Where did I put it? And it's just me, because I'm dumb. And I left it with TSA. So I go all the way back to TSA. They have it. It was fine. Whatever. But the really embarrassing part was later in the week, that after I was hanging out with friends in Denver, and so we're leaving Denver, and we're going through Denver security. And before we go through security, I was like, guys, crazy story. I almost lost my suitcase on the way here. And they're like, haha, that's funny, whatever. And then we go through Denver security. And I forgot my suitcase with TSA in Denver. Except, here's the catch. Apparently, Denver security, you can't just go back to TSA. You have to leave the airport, go back to the front, go all the way back through security, and then you get back to TSA. Luckily, they had my suitcase, and I barely made my flight. And I was so embarrassed. I was like, oh my gosh, why can't I not just keep track of simple things in my life? It's, it's, sometimes it's the worst to lose things. I think there are a lot of pains worse than embarrassment, though, that can come from losing something in our lives. I think some of the worst pain that we experience in life is when we lose a relationship or a friendship with someone. It's the date that never texts you back. It's the parent who abandoned you. The friend or the roommate who moved on and doesn't really want to hang out with you anymore. There is a uniquely excruciating kind of pain that comes from being left by someone. And this is what makes the doctrine of election so beautiful. God will never leave you. He will never cast you out. God will never abandon you. He will never give up on you. Everyone who's drawn by the Father and given to the Son will be raised on the last day. You are secure in God's love. Listen, this means that when you fail as a friend or a parent, when you're a bad sibling or a bad roommate, God doesn't give up on you. This means that when you drink too much or when you lose your temper, that God's love for you is just the same as it was before. This means when you are at your worst, when you give in to lust or you stumble into some terrible sin, God doesn't abandon you. He doesn't give up on you. He doesn't cast you out. God's love for you is secure. He loves you so much that he will never lose you. He chose you and he will always keep you in his love. That's how much God loves you. And listen, when you have the love of God, when that love of God enters into your heart, then that's the motivation that we need to live a changed life, to be the kind of friend or roommate or spouse or parent that we're called to be, to say no to drinking too much or losing our temper, to be the kind of friend that we were meant to be, to be able to to love those in our community. Listen, God's love for you is secure. That's how good our God is. He chose you and he will never leave you. He will never give up on you. God never abandons us. I want you to be overcome by the unconditional love of God that is always secure for you because of Jesus. I know there are a lot of times in our lives, if we're being honest, that it does feel like God has abandoned us. Maybe it's something you're walking through right now. Maybe it's something that you look back on that it feels like God has totally given up on you. Something I've been learning recently about how do we actually, how do we 
remember God's love in those moments? How do we actually feel his presence when God feels completely distant? One thing I've been learning is how helpful it can be to use a sanctified Christian imagination. I want you this week, when you're remembering some of the worst times in your life, when it's felt like God has completely left you and given up on you, I want you to imagine Jesus there with you. I want you to imagine what he would say to you. I want you to to think about verses from scripture where Jesus, he's talked about his love. He's talked about something that you're going through. I want you to be able to imagine Jesus with you there in the room, loving you, showing you his presence. I think that can be so helpful for us to rest in the love of God. Listen, God's love for you is secure. He never gives up on you. I want you to remember that he is with you and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Just like we sang in that song earlier, we are chosen, not forsaken. That's how much God loves us. Election is so good because of predestination. That means that we can have satisfaction in Jesus and that we can be secure in the love of God. There's also a third benefit that we get from election that I want us to see in John 6. And it's, it's spirit-filled life. What Jesus wants us to see next is that because God has chosen us, that means that we can have life in the spirit forever. Jesus uses this phrase called the flesh. That's just the Bible. It's the the Bible's way of talking about human willpower apart from God. And what Jesus says is the flesh is no help at all, but in the spirit, we have abundant life, the life that we were meant to have. Let me just show this to you in John 6. This is verse 63, jumping down. Jesus says, It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Jesus teaches here that human willpower is completely worthless apart from God. We can never muster up enough strength on our own to be able to obey God. But when the Spirit intervenes, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, God himself, when the Spirit comes into our hearts, we're able to have life. We're able to actually obey God and love him and feel his presence with us. I think trying to live life by the flesh, that's kind of like trying to to run a car with no fuel. It just, it can't work. We cannot turn over the engines of our hearts on our own. The only way that our hearts can actually run like they're supposed to, have the kind of life that they're supposed to, is by the fuel of the Spirit. It's only when the Spirit comes in that our hearts, they live, and we're able to experience the abundant life that God gives to us. Listen, this is so good, because this means that God can save anyone. This means that no heart is too dead for the Spirit to come into it and bring life. This means that there is no one, there's no friend, sibling, child, parent who is too far from God for the Spirit to enter in and do his work. When the Spirit gets a hold of anyone, he can bring life into a dead heart. I love how the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink says this. He writes, the doctrine of election is a source of inexpressibly great comfort. If work and reward were the standard of admission into the kingdom of heaven, its gates would be open for no one. But to believe in and to confess election is to recognize even the most unworthy and degraded human being as a creature of God and an object of his eternal love. Election means that anyone 
even the most sinful or stubborn person is a creature of God's love. And God can work in their heart to save them. That is such good news. I know many of us here, we have friends or loved ones in our lives who we've been praying for for weeks, months, years, decades. And they're not, they haven't experienced the love of Jesus yet. Election means that there is hope. God can save anyone. The Spirit can intervene in any heart. Listen, that parent who is far from God and you feel like would never believe in Jesus, God can save, God can save him. That sibling who never wants to talk about the gospel with you, God can save her. That friend or neighbor or coworker who you've been sharing with over and over and over with for years, and they still, they don't see the point. They don't see why they should believe in Jesus. God can save them because the spirit can bring life into anyone's heart. Election is so good. I remember one of my really close friends in high school, I shared all throughout high school, I shared the gospel with them over and over and over again. And he was like, this is dumb. I don't want to believe this. This is stupid. And kept sharing, kept praying and nothing. And so when we, when we graduated, I figured I would just go out on a limb. And I was like, hey, you should really try out this church. It's right next to the college that you're going to be going to. You should give it a shot. I never thought that he would actually go. And then we're hanging out freshman year of college. And he's like, hey, I started attending this church. And time goes by and he hears the gospel and he finally believes it. Listen, no one is too far gone. No heart is too rebellious or too sinful for God to save them. Because God elects and predestines people, that means he can save anyone. He can intervene in anyone's life. God can save anyone, no matter how lost they are. When Jesus originally taught this message in John chapter six, it was incredibly controversial. So controversial that the crowd of 5,000 people dwindled all the way down to 12, just the 12 disciples. Talking about stuff like election can be really hard to process through. I love though how, uh, how Peter responds to Jesus. Thousands of people leave, Jesus stopped following him. And then Peter gives his reason for staying. Verse 68, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I want you to have spirit-filled life like that, where you see all the other options on the table and you say, Jesus, where else would I go? Where else could I find the life that I have in you? There is nothing in the world more satisfying than you, Jesus. I want you to have spirit-filled life like that. I want you to be like Peter and cling to Jesus. Listen, maybe you're here today and you're not following Jesus. Maybe you're kind of like the 5,000 who they didn't get the bread they wanted and so they walked away. Maybe you're not following after Jesus. I want you to believe in him. I want you to feast on Jesus and be satisfied. I want you to see that Jesus, he came, he's the one who descended from heaven to take on human flesh so you could be lifted up into new life in Jesus. Jesus is the one who didn't just take on human flesh, but actually went to the cross so that his body could be broken and his blood poured out so that you could be saved. 
If you haven't believed in Jesus yet, I want you to go to him in faith and trust in him for the first time. Wouldn't you believe in him and feast, be satisfied, have your greatest joy. There's nothing else in the world that will satisfy you like Jesus. I want you to go to him and be satisfied, trust in him, believe in him, rely on him, depend on him. And you will, you will have the bread of life that will never let you down, that will satisfy you forever. It is so good that God intervenes in our lives to save us. The doctrine of election is such good news for us. Because God predestines and chooses us, that means that we can have satisfaction, it means that we can have security, and it means that we can have spirit-filled life. I want us to be able to rest in God's love that we have through election and trust in Him more. 